Today on the Dolby Institute podcast, we're talking about creative sound design for short films. This conversation comes from a panel discussion we had recently at Aspen Shorts Fest, which is without question one of the best film festivals for short films in the world. So what goes into building a track for a short film and collaborating with your sound team when you're dealing with a short time frame and an even more limited budget? Well, to help us answer those questions and more, we're joined by some of the filmmakers from this year's Aspen Shorts Fest. Madly Lane, director of Dear Passengers, Nikita Diacour, director of Backflip, and Luis Fernando Puente, director of I Have No Tears and I Must Cry. This is a great discussion about the creative process of storytelling and about how that process translates into crafting a compelling soundtrack for a film regardless of the runtime. Let's jump into it. I want to start off by talking about Dear Passengers. And uh, for those of you who haven't seen the film yet, uh, I would love uh, for you to just tell us a little bit about the film. What's, uh, what's this, you know, the, the, the basic outline of the story and maybe set up the clip that we're going to show. Uh, thank you. Is it working? Oh, oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> thank you. Well. <laughs> yeah. Tells a lot. <laughs> so, um, um, thank you for having uh, us here. It's really, um, for me, this whole uh, journey with the film was like, um, um, I told our sound designer after the sound mix when we had finished the film from home, I said, like, I, f I feel like I finished MFA in sound design. It was a lot of work and a lot of learning experience. Um, but uh, the film is about um, touch. It's about um, more like human connection, about like emotional closeness and building it up. And uh, yeah, we shot in a bus um, with non-professional actors, uh, with non-performers. So we basically, we just rented a bus and we were constantly driving, doing the laps around. So it was very like, I wanted to keep it very naturalistic. Um, so we also shot uh, in kind of a documentary style. So there were no slate, nothing. So uh, we already knew before we were shooting, there will be no sound on oh, the set. Oh, this is a nightmare. So you actually didn't use any production sound no, at all. No, everything Everything that we yeah. hear mm -hmm. was created after in post-production. Exactly, yeah. Wow, okay. And the clip is quite from the beginning of the film. We, we were discussing it with sound designer and uh, the soundscape is growing throughout the film. So. Uh, in two minutes, we thought we'd take the, like, almost the first part of the film to show the most changes in the film. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Wonderful. Uh, let's go ahead and roll the clip from Dear Passengers.
So that gives you just a little taste of Dear Passengers. Uh, Madly, that's amazing. So, uh, Madly, you just blew my mind by telling me that there were no production tracks, uh, that everything that we heard was created in post-production. So can you just, uh, just walk us through that process? And so that actually gave you total control to shape where the audience was focusing, what we're paying attention to. And I have lots of questions for you about the tone. But just start about, like, how did, how did you find your – let me start with there. Your sound designer is um, – uh, Alexandra Cole? Um, Marcus Andres. Mm -hmm. So how did you find them? What attracted to you, uh, attracted you to their work? Mm -hmm. and, and how did you talk with them about what you wanted to get out of the soundtrack for the film? Uh, so they were in sound team, there were basically five people. It was sound designer Marcus Andreas, uh, then composer Patrick McKinley, and then Foley artist Anna Maria Jams, uh, Alexandra Coel, and Foley recordist Jonas Taimela. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and about um, like kind of uh, guidelines I gave to sound team and also for visuals, it was first that I, um, I wanted the whole film to be a physical journey for the audience viewers so um, that uh, in the beginning it's really uncomfortable it's claustrophobic it's uh, uh, you don't want the strangers around you it's more like icky it's a terrible <laughs> situation and throughout the film it's kind of uh, settles all the um, warmth comes in and in the end of the film uh, as an audience you really feel you want to um, you're opening up to the strangers next to you and you really want to hug and you really want to hug the people so um and this was the first guideline, I think, which was uh, we started with a really documentary style. So uh, by that you mean like very naturalistic? Naturalistic, yeah. and which was also like in a sound that, uh, that there is like no foley, it's just a bus sound. Like with every uh, cut, you also hear like the cut in Atmo, which is mostly like in documentary film where you don't like build up like a scene sound in a way. Um, and then you move closer. And also the audience, like in this documentary style, they would really think about their own experiences in a bus. They would feel like uh, they are in the bus. And then you move closer to the people, to the characters, and, um, and then the Foley work comes really in, that it's really physical. You feel it, you, um, you, you feel it in your body. It's kind of like a body experience. Uh, and then it slowly goes into the minds of the people, like the characters. So it's more like this um, uh, inner world, subjective world, also in the sound, and then it goes into this wild, like a dance, <laughs> dancing in the end. This was the one guideline, and the second, I really wanted to work only with bus sounds. Right. So like sound the bus is making or the sounds you could hear in the bus. So it could be even like, uh, we, we started like that, but we opened it up uh, because the bus sound was kind of like really dark. So we opened it up like, like different clothes material, um, different, like it could be leaves or like rocks or like little like metal scraps or, yeah. It's a, a, an extraordinarily detailed track. And one of the things that I, I was really curious about when I saw uh, the film originally, and I was really happy when you picked this particular clip, is what you're doing with the tone. And you're using both, you know, the sound design and the music. But it's very, um, I think I was saying to you earlier, it's the beginning of the film is very unsettling. Mm -hmm. Like you're in extreme close-up, 
it's very disorienting for the audience. We're not really sure exactly what's going on. There's, you know, a, a, what's obviously a very, uh, a, 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 you know, a hand on the pole from an older person, a hand on the pole from a younger person, and the, 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 the older person's hand is getting creepily close and the younger person is taking it away, but then it's, and then the effect is very unsettling. So I'm curious about, since you had this sort of rule that you only wanted to use sounds that were in the bus, how, how were you able to make this so kind of unsettling? Yeah, this was something like to be in the beginning on like um, this uh, clo claustrophobic uh, feeling. And also when I talked with the, the Foley team who did the Foley's, which I didn't know particularly in this clip that, um, uh, of course, the touch is the basic or the most important thing in the film, but how much they worked with the touch. Like first there is like the, the different skin like from different people, there is an older person whose skin is more like dry and the younger person who is, um, I talked with a Foley artist who said like when she was doing the work, like she, for like these teenagers to moisturize the hand, that it would be like kind of like a sticky, you know, and, the, and for this um, older lady, she was just rubbing her hand on the carpet to get it like this dry feeling. And also with the, like the pole, it's also the handrail, it's also important in the film because it's a, like the also material from the bus. So it's, uh, and how to make it that it's um, on, the feeling is uncomfortable in the end, but this touch goes like more like warmth towards the end of the film. This was also like one like big task yeah. to settle and yeah, and like one, I, what I heard <laughs> from then, like we had just like long Zoom yesterday, so I learned so much about my film. So that um, <clears throat> what they did, that they um, recorded the foley's very close, almost like in any animatic, like in anima animation way, mm. that it would be also like be like really this close and big uh, touch uh, sound. So for those of you who may not be familiar with the the term, so uh, when we talk about foley, that's a specific part of the creation of the sound effects. Uh, where you actually have performers who go into a recording stage and they will watch the movie and then perform sounds in sync with the picture that they're seeing. So, uh, for instance, in this particular case, like a, a hand grabbing uh, the rail, that would be something that a Foley artist would do and be recorded and, and put and put it in the film. Because if you think about it, that, you know, uh, once, once you, since you started with nothing, everything had to be constructed, and all of those very specific sounds wouldn't necessarily be in a sound effects library. Tell me a little bit about the collaboration between the sound design and the music, because you use music in a very interesting way in the film. Um, I, uh, there was also, like, for me, like, kind of restriction I wanted. I didn't want to use music. So I didn't want to use real musical instruments. Um, so I was looking for someone who is working uh, with um, um, just found objects or like found sounds. So Patrick McKinley is a great he's a sound artist, uh, perfor uh, performance artist. Uh, so he uses like just like field recordings or like just found sounds, found objects. And also um, kind of there was like this idea to use only kind of material. It could be in the, in the um, bus, but in a way... Um, what made it complicated, but I think in the end also rewarding, I am not a composer, sound designer was not a composer, but also our composer was not a like, classical uh, film composer. So in the end it was kind of complicated because um, I also didn't really understand what kind of materials he's using, so it was hard to communicate, but it helped us. We had like this recording session together, so we saw what kind of materials he's using, what kind of sounds they make, 
so and there we kind of figured out our vocabulary and tools. And I think what is in the end the strength of the film is that uh, you don't really understand where the sound design ends and where the music starts. So it's all kind of blended together. Absolutely. That's, I'm glad that you mentioned that because it's one of the favorite things that I love to explore is that kind of blurry line between sound design and music because they're both very powerful tools uh, and they accomplish different things, but it's really creatively satisfying when they exist sort of in this conversation uh, with each other. So, <clears throat> you know, I can just imagine, you know, there's so much work that went into this track. Uh, you know, tell me about your collaboration with your sound designer and, and as you got into the mix. Like, I'm sure the first time they presented stuff to you, it was not where you wanted it to be, right? So t tell me about that collaboration and, and your process of working through this with your team to get, the, to get the sound design in the mix where you wanted it to be. Yeah, I think it was um, terrible for a sound designer in the beginning because the first, we were editing in mute, like there was no sound at all. Like the sound was in my head, but I was not sure that anyone else really understood where I was going for. And so, so he let me ask you a question there. So when you were shooting, did you not even bother recording any wild track? There's no, there was, was there a wild track that you recorded on the set? Uh, in the beginning, we decided not to record because I didn't, because, because of the non-actors, we didn't really want to have like this, you know, this peak production. So there was like DSL camera somewhere like far away, like it's really natural. And you're probably was, also talking to the actors while course, you were rolling the, the camera. Yes, right. with yeah. me, a choreographer, like what the, all the movements through. So we recorded but for the edit, but in the end, because there was so much talking, so we just threw it away. So the sound designer just got something like, just picture, <laughs> no sound at all. <laughs> Figure it out yourself, goodbye. So, uh, and, but um, uh, for him, like I talked with him, like with Marcus, and he said like that um, there's literally like these three layers. We talked about already like Foley and music, but the, the basis where he started was uh, actual recording in a bus. So um, they rented a bus and they went there. They had like 10 mics. I knew all the mics. I can also tell about that <laughs> a bit. Uh, so they were, uh, they went through like all these movements, all these steps, everything. Um, it was like this um, terrible news for us first that we couldn't rent the same bus. So we got like this really rusty old bus, which was just in a was traveling, uh, driving around in this mine pit, <laughs> and we were uh, terrified in the beginning. But in the end, I think it, this, this is the strength of the film because the bosses had just such a character, a personality. That's, yeah. I'm really glad that you brought that up because it's one of the, to me, it's one of the the hidden, the the, the hidden tricks of sound design uh, in film and storytelling is as the as the the famous uh, sound editor and film uh, sound designer and film editor Walter Murch says uh, he describes sound as the back door that information comes to the audience through the front door, obviously being the image and the picture. And because it's coming through the back door of the ears, the audience is not necessarily paying the same level of conscious mm -hmm. attention to it. And so they will ex accept a level of abstraction. And, you know, I, I hesitate to say, you know, manipulation from the artist mm -hmm. that it's kind of shocking what you can get away with. Mm -hmm sneaking interesting things into the track that are not, would, not, would never actually be there in a real life environment. One of the things I wanted to ask you about uh, watching the film a couple of times is there's an interesting, there's a really interesting texture, almost like a, a crackling mm -hmm. kind of, um, the thing that it reminded me of, um, it was just really disconcerting, but it reminded me of actually swimming in the ocean mm -hmm. and that sort of like crackling that, that you hear when you're you know, snorkeling in the, in, in the actual ocean. And just tell me about that and where that came from and why, why you chose to, 
to kind of layer that through the film? Yeah, it all comes um, from this uh, re actual recording in the bus, which were actually the creative decisions were made already before the recording and during the recording. So um, these 10 microphones, <laughs> we used um, uh, Patrick, who is a composer, sound artist, uh, his uh, self-made contact mics. And also like this, uh, probably you know better, like uh, Geophone, LOM. Right. Uh, um, which is like and um, little like uh, tad lavaliers and like room microphones and shotguns to be able to like just react quickly. So basically this crackling is something it's uh, which is um, the bus engine. But it's uh, because it's a con contact microphone, it's very close to it. So yeah. it gets like this vibration. Yeah. So the moments when we go inside the characters, and we are kind of like this in the header space, like they're, like where their fears and the desires are that we don't lose the bus completely. It's it's still there, like the vibration yeah. of the bus and the engine and the rhythm, but it's not like a bus bus. It's kind of like the outer world experience. Yeah, that's really a, a, a great point. And it's a, it's a, it's a, a fun tool that a lot of sound designers play with, which is using contact mics. And by contact mics, this is actually microphones that are designed to actually be, be placed in contact with whatever the thing is that's creating the sound. So you can actually put one on your chest, you know, for, you know, kind of body sounds, or you can put it on a, you know, bus engine to uh, uh, capture, you know, vibrational sounds and things like that. So that's just fascinating. Any other points from your sound designer that they wanted you to make before we... Uh... I can just keep on talking, but there's also other filmmakers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very good. Uh, Nikita, let's talk about uh, Backflip. Uh, tell us a little bit about your film, sort of what was the, you know, what the, the, the story and what, what, what prompted you to, to make the film. Um, so, yeah, thanks for having us, first of all. Um, yeah, the film is based on, um, um, on uh, it's inspired by YouTube, by people actually trying or reaching try to reach certain goals on YouTube, and one of them is backflip. And uh, it's also based on a research paper which is about machine learning and uh, artificial intelligence. And um, so in the end, we actually, we made this film and it was completely without sound because uh, yeah, animation doesn't have sound by itself. Um, and to me, when I was studying, I quickly was told, like the thing that you said, 50%, uh, of the film is the sound and um, I soon realized it's actually more than 50% <laughs> and uh, especially with animation when you animate for years and then you have this image and then you go into the sound studio and then you spend about a day and then suddenly things start to come alive yeah. and so to me sound was always very a very fun thing to do something something that's very rewarding and um, yeah, I always put a lot of effort into it. And I was lucky enough to work with uh, David, David Kamp on the sound. Um, he also worked on the, on the other films. And uh, yeah, we spent a lot of time actually to, to, to make it. So in this particular clip, I should point out that the, uh, the, the avatar who is machine learning teaching itself to backflip um, and not particularly well, I would add. Um, it's you. So you, this is, you know, you made, you, you, the, the avatar that you made is you teaching itself how to backflip in this, I think this particular part of the film is in your apartment? Yeah, it's, it's, it's starting in the park and then it goes into my apartment, uh, kind of like the YouTubers sometimes do it. They go out in the grass and then they like, they re realize that it's a bit hard and then they go at home with a mattress. And uh, yeah, that's how I did it. 
and the sound is also completely done done in the apartment, like with all the objects. Okay, so uh, let's watch the uh, let's watch Nikita's avatar try to teach itself to backflip. Nikita, your avatar must be so angry with you. Uh, God, there's so much to talk about in that clip. Uh, you know, I, I would love to, I didn't realize that for both of you, uh, the, the sound treatment is essentially an animated film completely. So talk to me a little bit about what you're doing. Before we get into the sound, I want to talk with you first about what you're doing with the image. Because your avatar has a very distinctive look. You're putting your avatar, you're putting him him, you, um, in a, a, a photo real, sometimes photo real environment, but only partially and not consistently always. So talk to me about why you decided your, your design process around creating, um, that, that specific uh, approach to the images uh, and why some of it's photo real. And it actually, when your avatar crashes into things, they behave as they would with, you know, in real life with real physical properties. Um, yeah, so the um, the training process of the um, I don't know actually where to start. It's uh, it's like so many steps, but about the, the design, the room was um, in the beginning 3D scanned, and then based on that scan, we took the information to kind of just project these very simple um, like projection mapped textures. So it's uh, in the end very simple, but at the same time also distorted and kind of broken and then it changes depending on the camera angle that was the um, the kind of rule that uh, we set for ourselves but um and um 
But yeah, in the beginning, the whole thing was actually without the objects. The training process was in an empty kind of computer space, like a digital space. And uh, then once the training was done over like a couple of days or weeks for certain kind of things that the avatar had to do, uh, we um, were able to place it into the room and the room was then kind of recreated and made physical and um, make it perform their kind of simulated with different skill levels um, based on a script. That was the, the approach without the sound. Yeah. So the thing that struck me immediately about the sound is that you know you're 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 treating image in a very interesting non-literal way. I mean your projection mapping it has your avatar has a very distinct look. You know that 3D environment some of it's photoreal, some of it's not even finished. Um but your approach to to the sound is very different. Um it's incredibly naturalistic, it's very specific and it is exactly I mean, I, the, my description of it would be, this is exactly what it would sound if this were a real person crashing around in a real apartment. There's no, there's no abstraction. It's a very literal approach to the sound. So I'm kind of curious how you settled on that approach. And I'm, what, what, do you, it, it, what do you think is the effect on the audience to have this incredibly specific and literal soundtrack married with these images? Um, yeah, I think the effect that you have very realistic sound is that you can connect with it probably better, especially because the image is uh, not very kind of uh, connectable maybe because of the distortion and things. Um, and I think in animation generally you tend to make more realistic sounds because the animation kind of uh, abstracts things and the sound brings you kind of back to reality in a sense. And um, yeah, so that was that was the main point. I think if if the sound was artificial, also, then probably wouldn't you wouldn't be able to connect with it uh, so much. For sure, um, there there was there, there's so much in the specifics of the track that I just loved. Like every time he knocks into the table, the bottle wobbles and has its whole like you know it wobbles and settles. Like it's a very I, I love that. Yeah, the bottle is actually like a, like uh, like. A separate character in the film, um, and it was actually in the script, also and in the storyboard. So it was very difficult to simulate it because when you simulate, sometimes things turn out uh, like as you don't want them to be. So you end up simulating it like a hundred times, and then until he actually hits the table and the bottle starts wobbling, and then like, yes, and um, and then from there, then it's like done in stages. Then you take the different uh, task. For example, he does uh, um, the task is stand up, then stands up a couple times, then does it in the right way, and then you say, okay, in the script, next move is to do backflip with a skill level of um, like 400 or something. Yeah. And then you keep simulating that. Um, but yeah, what we did was we um, went into the room and actually like took all the objects and recorded them as they are, like as realistic as possible. Like as uh, I was literally like when when the avatar is having the head against the computer. That's uh, me basically like banging my head against the computer. <laughs> There's other ways you could have done that, but you know, <laughs> it's truthful. <laughs> very similar. Uh, the head has a very specific density, so. I'm, uh, <laughs> 
I love the I love the way you 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 talk about the approach to why the the literalism of the sound was necessary to root this in kind of an, an emotion, and it, and it reminds me of, you know, um, kind of the, there's a, a long. There's a long arc of the treatment of sound in animation. I think in in in, in classic kind of Walt Disney uh, animated features, starting from the 30s uh, up until really up until Pixar, uh, the sound treatment for animation was not naturalistic at all. It was very much about dialogue, music, often songs, and there wasn't necessarily a huge amount of of attention paid on the sound design. The kind of the revolution for sound and animation really started with Pixar, um, and I think that one of the reasons was because the, especially in the first couple of films, the first Toy Story, which echoes your film, the images were so synthetic that they found it actually really helpful to create an incredibly naturalistic soundscape for these very synthetic images to live in, and the, the, I think that the 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 directive with those Pixar films was always. You know, if I close my eyes, I want to imagine that I'm watching a live action film with all of the detail and the naturalism that I would expect in a live action film, married with these very synthetic images. So you did that. You did that very, very well. Yeah, I always kind of try to go away from Pixar, but with this, uh, with the sound, actually, yeah, it's very, um, very Pixar-y. Well, you pick what works for you and leave the rest yeah. behind. Yeah. Any other, uh, tell, tell us about your sound designer and your process of collaboration um, with them. Yeah, the, my sound designer is the most patient sound designer ever. And I think that's, um, that's important because you have to kind of find someone where you can bounce ideas back and forth and um, actually kind of, um, because, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's uh, always difficult to talk about sound. It's always difficult to find the right words for specific sounds. Um, and... It took us a while, like three films actually, to to reach a level where where it's very kind of understandable uh, on with the least amount of sentences when you when you try to describe things. But it took us. Yeah, he was really really patient. It took us like weeks to in the studio, and then uh, also he came to my apartment and we stayed for a couple of days just to record the sounds. Um, it was annoying also because there is a trams going outside and the neighbors are shouting and stuff like that. Well, it's interesting that you say that because one, it, it, I don't think it was in this particular clip, but one of the things I noticed was that there is, you know, you do include sounds from outside the, the window of the neighborhood, which is, it just adds another layer of naturalism that this is actually, you yeah. know, because you would expect in an urban apartment, you're going to hear things from outside the, the outside world. Yeah, there's one point um, when you actually hear the muffled sound from the neighbors kind of talking or the television or something. And then when, when the character kind of jumps against the window and the window opens, I think that's just like opens up the world also because yeah, the sound that you hear from places which you don't see on the screen, I think is very important. It just it creates the atmosphere. So when the window opens, you you know you're in the city. Yeah. And you and when you hear the birds you 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 get a sense of time. So it's like it's the morning is approaching. And in this film it's important because it's a process. It's a time process the learning process so it's actually important to know like birds morning and no birds it's evening and to kind of indicate the progress with the sound yeah absolutely it's just a well it's a remarkable track uh, congratulations Thank any you. other final thoughts before we uh no okay perfect <laughs> absolutely luis fernando puente tell us about your film 
um, so I have no tears and I must cry is uh, follows the story of a couple, an immigrant couple, uh, who go into an interview for a marriage-based screen card for our main character, Maria Luisa. Um, and uh, it's just that little scene kind of with a little bit of bookends at the, you know, the front and the back. Um, this this uh, the story was actually based off of my wife's screen card interview. Um, so a lot of it is very much verbatim how, how we kind of remembered uh, that process. And so... Um, with going with, with regards to sound, um, the challenge was to, um, you know, kind of make it as immersive as possible as how we, how I, you know, remembered being in that room, kind of hearing everything and then going through the motions of the events of that day. Great. Let's watch this clip. Have you ever been convicted of a felony? No. Have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? No. Have you ever overstayed your visa? No. Are you sure? Yeah. So you're lying. What? You overstayed your visa by two months. But we got married. Getting married does not change your status. When you filed your application, that's when your status went on hold. Or am I wrong? No. Just make a few notes here. Here, you take these. The originals. If I were to approve you for residency, I would keep this. I'm not going to prove you for a green card today, so you take that. You'll need it in case things go south. I need to run a couple background checks and verify some information. So what now? So now, there are a few possible outcomes. One, I might need you to come back in in case I have any more questions. There's anything unclear. Two, I clear everything up, you get your green card, or three, we begin deportation proceedings. Either way, you'll get notification in the mail in about three weeks. Just to let you know. I'm getting anxious again just watching that. <laughs> Uh, Luis, tell us about your collaboration with your sound designer and, and how you approached building the, the track for this particular sequence. Yeah, um, so our sound designer was actually also our, our uh, on-set recordist, um, our, our production sound. His name's Eric Nam, and we've known each other for a long time now. We, we both went to school together. Um, we, um, it's funny because I, 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 before... I wanted to direct. I actually wanted to become an audio engineer and and do that. And I did work at a TV station doing uh, sound design for a little bit, kind of as a junior uh, sound designer doing uh, audio editing and inputting sound and such. So uh, we both did that. We we both uh, kind of grew up. We were roommates at some point where we were students, and so we we already naturally have this. Uh, uh, this language of conversation that, that that we go through things when I asked them to to do this film, 
And it's funny when when we were on set, he uh, was doing things that I would think of like, oh, de facto. It's like, yeah, hey, make sure you get like some of the diegetic sounds kind of as wild takes later, you know, for us to use and 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 do that. And I didn't have to ask him. He already knew that's kind of. He knew what he would need when he got into the exactly. sound design phase. So he, he captured it during, it's almost like he was running a Foley recording while you were shooting the film, right? Exactly. And and not only that, I think after after the takes, after we would wrap a specific uh, 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 setup for coverage, he would also go in and like, hey, can I get the papers rustling again? That's one of the things that we really wanted to do is we wanted that those documents, those to become uh, characters of them of themselves. And so he knew that was what, you know, some of the highlight of that sound design was going to be, Make sure, making sure we had kind of isolated sounds uh, as well as picture, you know, to, to, to do so. When we're in the close-ups of the immigration officer, actually, um, we, we recorded those without the papers. We actually had like um, a towel, uh, white paper towels to kind of get the, the reflection of the light there so that uh, he could get that dialogue clear and then we could also then record the papers afterwards and, and such all that wrestle. So there was like a lot of kind of uh, back and forth. He would give me, hey, can I do this? I'm like, oh yeah, totally. And then I was like, hey, can you get this? And he's like, yeah, sure. So there was a lot of things. We tried to cover as much of the sound as we could as possible on set so that by the time we got to the mix, um, or the or the design that would we we just had a lot. There's a lot to dig into. I, I feel like I could you know we we could spend an hour just talking about this two minute clip um, because there's there's from a sound design perspective it's so rich. You know the, the the images the way you're the way you're composing the frame. You know this particular part is you're in extreme close ups. Um, which gives a definite signal to the audience about sort of emotional stakes of what's happening. The soundtrack I found echoes it because, you know, I love the way you were talking about the specificity around the recordings of the paper um, because they're non-naturalistically loud. You know, if you were actually in that room, it wouldn't, It, but to me, this is a great example of one of the most powerful uses of sound design, which is to put the audience into the objective, the subjective experience that the character's having. And in this situation, uh, she's very tense. Obviously the stakes are very high. This person could deny her a green card and start deportation proceedings. So when you're in a situation like that, where the emotional stakes are that high, I'm sure you're gonna, you can, you, you can, empathize like you become hyper focused and aware of everything that's happening in that moment it's almost like that thing about being in a car crash and time slows down and you sort of really focus in and and you're you're focusing on those very small sounds and making them incredibly present reinforces that sense of of tension um and there's a remarkable moment you know the uh, i love talking about ambience and tone and there's a very specific kind of like room tone that's in that interrogation room but the second that she that the green card officer says i forget what exactly the line but she was said so you're lying to me uh, yet i don't know if you noticed it just watching the scene for the first time but the ambience of the room changes in that moment and it becomes like thicker and more and then shortly after that you start the music so can you talk about that because up to this point we haven't really heard much music in the film yeah um uh, this is why I'm excited for people to hear the 5-1 mix, because we actually amplify that a little bit as well with the LFE. Um, it is that ramping up. It's it's just kind of going more into just a bit of um, uh, foreshadowing. Um, when that more interrogative process starts, 
Um, for an immigrant, uh, when when you're always kind of in these situations where people are asking you a question, whether you're crossing, you know, in a point of port of entry or, or such like that, is you're always told or you're always trained yourself to answer in specific ways because you know that the wrong thing could just automatically derail an entire situation. And, you know, when it's question after question after question, um, the problem becomes like, oh, you, you become super hyper aware of like, am I going to say something wrong at some point, which essentially happens here. Um, and so that's that, the, the thought of it. And it's interesting, our, our uh, Eric, when he was doing the mix, he didn't actually start doing much until we had the music from from Jorge, which is another topic of itself. Jorge Murcia, our our our, um, our composer, and how we were choosing strategically where to put that. Um, but once he had that, he's like, okay, now I need now I know that I need to put this this rumble here. I need to put this uh, ambience here uh, to complement that, because it's uh, once that moment passes, once like the definitive moment point of no return happens, then that's when. Uh, our character's head just starts going everywhere. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's it's truly amazing. Um, before we uh, break into questions, I, I noticed when I was watching your film uh, that you worked with uh, Robert Machillion, who's uh, one of the executive producers on your film. And I just want to give a shout out. Robert is an extraordinary filmmaker, uh, Utah-based filmmaker, who works in a very, you know, typically in a very low-budget indie kind of canvas, but truly understands how powerful sound design is a tool. And he, he and uh, his sound designer, Peter Albrechtson, appeared on our podcast uh, maybe a couple years ago uh, with a film that I saw at, at Sundance called the, the, the Killing of Two Lovers, which is a micro-budget feature. I think they made it for under $100,000, but it has some of the most extraordinary sound design I have ever heard in a film. Uh, so do yourselves a favor, check that out. The Killing of Two Lovers. His latest film, uh, Integrity of Just the Chambers as well. Uh, Peter did just a phenomenal job. Just really, really took it somewhere else. So we're a big inspiration, those guys. And it's a big, it's a big lesson that I think a lot of people think, oh, creative sound design, that's something for big studio films, you know, that it doesn't necessarily have a role in, you know, lower budget indie filmmaking. But, you know, all three of these films are just fantastic examples of how the creative use of sound can really elevate the emotional stakes of a film. Any any final points you want to make? Ah, uh, yeah. There's um. I guess just the, the one thing it's 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 a uh, we um, kind of going on the thematics of the of just 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 immigration in the U.S. It's a system that's so old, um, and we did kind of a treatment for both image and sound. Um, uh, we for the for the image we we you know we shot in color digitally then then sent it through a lab to shoot through Super 16 so we could get like the degradation of that and kind of have this modern meets old thing. With this specifically, with the sound, we actually I asked uh, Eric if if there was any th way we could do some tape emulation on it and kind of degrade it a little bit. So we did look make at make it a few, analog. Yeah, we made, we we tried doing a, a bit of that analog, and so just so that both both of those kind of just could really come meet together and, and speak to that. So That's so amazing. it's just like I had forgotten about that. I was like, oh yeah, we did do that. Yeah. It's also a great tip, I think, for all three of you. One of the things I, I took away from it is that you actually you spent a lot of time in post production finessing the sound and getting it getting it right and and uh so it's that's that's an important uh, lesson as well uh, i'm going to open up now for questions but um and then i'll have one final question for each of you which is what did you learn about sound through making this film that you'll carry forward into your next film so think about that and we'll take some questions from the audience any any audience questions yeah right here in the middle i think they're gonna bring a microphone to you 
So with the advancements of AI and audio, uh, like Adobe AI or the AI softwares that are helping with overdriven audio, how do you think that will help um, in the future for the industry? Or will you guys stick to um, what you guys have already been doing for um, audio design? Like, will you guys use um, artificial intelligence for audio? Or do you guys think you'll stick with what you guys have been doing? I have an answer to this question, but I'm kind of curious to hear how you answer. And you played with it. I mean, you're, it wasn't in this clip, but the voice of your avatar is is, uh, is computer generated. Yeah, the voice is computer generated, and the the, um, uh, the music is also computer uh, AI generated. Um, the thing is, when we were doing it, it was um, already uh, like one year ago, and it feels like a century like, compared to what what what's possible now with AI and um, like it. it I was scared back then, and I'm more scared now. And I think I'm going to be more scared in the future. Um, but yeah, I think it depends. Really, if you, I think if you use these AI tools, uh, the question is how are you going to make it uh, personal? How are you going to make it more um, like yours for your film? Because if 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 it's just a generator that's taking its uh, sources from everyone, then it becomes like a average averaged thing. And um, so I think as long as the AI is not going to be like a personality, and, and I think we're safe. Um, I would say, I mean, coming, I, I, I used to edit dialogue. <laughs> so that means, you know, kind of cutting, putting fades, uh, you know, just taking off like unwanted noise and then putting back room tone in there under when you put ADR. Um, I think whatever process helps <laughs> with that just kind of you know like so that there is more room for the more creative aspects of it the more technical things that can actually be tackled by automation i think that is a huge plus um because then it just it just leaves more room for for the sound actual design process of it for people to to really be creative in it and, and rather than spending lots of time just having to clean things yeah i think uh the most interesting is the collaboration and we all come to this collaboration with our own previous experience and uh, understanding and I think this finding the common language is something which is really interesting and inspirational for me and I think you don't find it from <laughs> you know computer <laughs> based uh, programs so I don't know maybe but I, I like to work with humans. <laughs> I know a lot of sound designers who don't like to work with humans. So, uh, you know, it's an interesting question. I think, you know, historically, um, you know, we've, we, we have a long history and we've accepted computer generated imagery and it's to the point now where it's virtually, it's basically indistinguishable from, from photorealistic. That has not happened on the sound side. And I think there are a number of sort of evolutionary reasons for why that's so, uh, especially with the human voice. Um, and so like historically, you know, I've worked with some of the best sound designers in the business. Uh, Gary Rydstrom on Jurassic Park, uh, uh, you know, uh, Chris Boys who does the avatars. And so even this most recent avatar film, the the undersea creatures that, that they created for that, um, you know, obviously the images are synthetic, but the sounds are combinations of real animals that get put together and synthesized in different ways to create the sound of this very fantastic creature. But always under in the underbed of that is real organic sound. I think we're on the cusp of, of an exciting time of terrible disruption, and that is all going to completely change because of AI. And I think it, br it brings up, especially you brought up dialogue. I think it, it 
creates a whole host of interesting ethical questions because pretty soon we're going to be able to create synthetic dialogue that's indistinguishable from real recordings of real people who are maybe living or dead. There was a, uh, there was a controversy a couple years ago around a documentary that got made with a recently deceased subject and the filmmaker used AI and created some dialogue for this person to speak because they didn't, you know, and, but they didn't disclose it. And so that, you know, so it just creates, I think it's a very interesting, thrilling, terrifying time is an answer to your question. Uh, let's take uh, one more question right here. Hey, I've just, um, there was a lot of talk about uh, kind of workflow and kind of when in the filmmaking process and storytelling process you start incorporating sound into your creation, into the editing. Um, Luis, you mentioned with Eric how uh, he had this music come to inform um, the sound mix. And I know traditionally sometimes these processes are compartmentalized where we finish this, that's done, we move on to the next thing. And my question for all of you is, Creatively and as storytellers, what have you found most helpful in your workflow? It's like, when do you start introducing like very bare bones, kind of get the sound mix, get the sound design started? Do you like finishing the edit? Some of you sounds like you did. Do you like incorporating it as early as possible? I'm just curious, it's kind of open-ended, kind of what that process looks like for all of you and the sound design. That's a great question. Who wants to, who wants to dive in? I hate shooting coverage, so when I go on on uh, on set, I try to cut in my head when I'm doing a lot of things, because the the sound for me makes kind of grew up with it. I wanted to be this sound designer. Um, that that's kind of a bit of a playground for me. So I um I, I'll try to spend as little I mean as little as possible. I mean obviously with care, you know, with looking going through with going through an edit, so that by the time I lock that, I just the rest of post. I just have a blast with. I have a, so um, I, I'd say it's maybe a little bit of of everywhere. You know, I think I mean there, there's conversations that happen before we even shoot. Uh, there's conversations that happen while we're shooting. But I think a lot of it really comes down after you know after like okay we've got the cut done and ready. Now let's actually let's let's really just you know go for this. So for me maybe the the heavy part of it is after after we've locked that cut. Um, for me. Uh, it would normally, because if you do animation, you have already kind of like an animatic uh, before, and it really helps to actually, because animatic sometimes is just still images that are there for a certain amount of time, and it's very difficult to to um, feel it um, without the movement. So actually the sound helps to kind of indicate movement or indicate what's happening. So. What I do is, is I usually do an animatic with the sound, with at least the ambience. And um, in Backflip, for example, the sound already started with um, with the script. So, for example, um, I would just write um, character bounces against the table and then the bottle starts wobbling. And then in the simulation, then I would know that, okay, here I need to simulate the character actually pausing and bal balancing on the two feet because we need the bottle to kind of do its thing until the next task will happen. So it's actually, yeah, to me it's quite early with the sound design. Um, yeah, it's a great question. <laughs> it's for me also when I already write and I 
as a filmmaker, I already think about like, I set these little restrictions or goals for myself as a filmmaker, like what do I want to achieve with this film or learn in also in visually, but also audially. Uh, so I already in writing, I think about uh, that. And with this film was, there was no dialogue, nothing. And we didn't also want to use any human voice until the end. So kind of, and, um, and I'm also editor myself. So I know how much sound will change the cut. So it's important uh, with this film, we had like this first cut, we already sent it to sound. So we sent it back and forth several, several times because we were learning also like what to do in the sound. And we learned also what to do with visuals because it doesn't have like really this uh, traditional storytelling. So it was all like just figuring out, trying different things, understanding it's not working. So it was a lot of work to reach where we finally got. Yeah, I, I think I would just answer your question by saying there's no reason not to bring in your sound designer at the very beginning of the creative process, you know, as soon as you've got a, even a first draft of the script. Um, you know, you don't necessarily have to put them on payroll and start paying them through that entire period. But, you know, I think there's a reason why most of the major filmmakers working today tend to use the same sound designers over and over and over again. It's because they, they have that collaboration uh, the sound designers read the scripts before they, you know, it's, it's a great gift to be able to have a conversation with your sound designer before you go shoot the film, because the sound designer may have ideas about, you know, if you shoot maybe this particular scene, if you shoot it in a particular way, this might un unlock a really interesting way for us to communicate something with sound. Sound can also help you solve production problems. Um, you know, if uh, there may be a way to communicate through sound, like the bigger world outside of the frame that you then don't have to shoot and you can save money doing that. Um, so I think it's, there's no reason, uh, there's absolutely no reason not to in, engage them uh, at the very beginning of the process because it can only make the, only make the, the, the end product better. And I will say that when I think about the iconic moments of great sound design in film, none of them happened by accident in post-production. They had to be thought about at the script stage. They had to be shot that way. They had to be edited with room to allow those sound design moments to happen. So your, your sound designer is a key member of your creative team and should be included in the same conversations with your cinematographer from the beginning of the process. Um, okay, we'll take one more. You, have, you seem very eager over here. Uh, for Nikita, why his avatar didn't have any breathing. It's just sound. Because it's not alive. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's not alive. It's <laughs> it's a machine. It's a it's a computer, and it's uh, it's only doing the things that it's supposed to do. Basically, it's uh, the the voice uh, that you will hear in the actual film is is uh, like a synthesized, just like cloned voice of of me, and it doesn't breathe. It's just very clean. There's no like there's no uh, nothing in between the words. It's just silence and. Uh, it's the most artificial thing. That's why it's not breathing. That's a great question. Absolutely. All right, lightning round. Very quickly for each of you, what's, what's one thing that you learned about the use of sound as a storytelling tool on this film that you'll take with you on your f next films? Luis, you want to start? Um, yeah, I think something very, very important that I learned was that even, even if I'm choosing to tell a very grounded story, there's no reason why sound should not be as expressive as, as the image. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's something that going forward, I'll, I'm always looking forward to applying in every, every project. 
I think to me, um, I kind of knew it, but with this film, I, I it, it was um, enforced the um, the fact that if you have a um, like a shitty image and you have a great sound, it's gonna be a good sequence. <laughs> and the other way around, if you have a shitty sound and you have a, an amazing image, it's probably gonna be a, a shitty sequence. Um, I think I learned the most, um, like what I have learned in editing, when you have like a problem, then the problem is not normally in this moment, where there is a problem, the problem is earlier, you have to solve. And with this film, we already knew we are not using musical instruments, so there are not violence, so how to build up the emotion. And attention. Exactly, and like this emotional release in the end, so you are not have to work with this place, you have to work it earlier, like, you know, build up this tension and chaos or something that it could have like this emotional release in the end. So it was like interesting learning experience. Fantastic. Great answers, everyone. Many thanks once again to Madly, Nikita and Luis for joining us on the panel and offering their insights into their creative process. Of course, we have to thank the folks at Aspen Film who put together the Aspen Shorts Fest every year and who pull this panel discussion together for us. And I want to give an extra special thanks to the students at the Colorado Film School in Denver who filmed and recorded and edited this discussion for us so we could share it with you today. We have links and more info about the festival, the films, and all the folks who helped us make this episode, as always, in our show notes. If you'd like even more conversations with artists and filmmakers just like these folks and how they use technology to tell their stories, please be sure you're subscribed to us, the Dolby Institute podcast. You can find links to our show on all the major podcasting platforms, including the video version on YouTube in our show notes. Or you can just search for Dolby wherever you get your podcasts. If you're curious to know more about the Dolby Institute, head on over to dolbyinstitute.com. There you'll find information about all of our programs. You can access the entire library of episodes of this podcast, and you can sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, thanks again for joining us. This is the Dolby Institute podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Kaiser. Our producer and editor is Michael Coleman. Our executive producers are Amanda Schneider and Jack Ferry, with additional editing by Matt Nixon. And our production coordinator is Sonny Chen. Thanks for watching.